True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The young woman excitedly smooths imaginary creases out of her smartest outfits and checks her makeup one last time in a small mirror as the car pulls up at the roadside. She couldn't believe her luck when the pastor called her to say he'd had a job interview lined up for her. After being unemployed for so long, she couldn't wait to be able to support herself and her daughters and maybe help her mom out too. She plants a quick kiss on her boyfriend's cheek on her way to the car. The driver smiles widely and she gets in, right into the den of a predator. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 83, The Murder of Glompo Mohapi Kaloi. This episode is sponsored by Just Wellness. Recently, I've been unable to record any episodes in the morning because I'm waking up with my nose and throat on fire. Although I'm super excited that spring has sprung and that means summer's on the way, the resulting allergies and hay fever are no fun to deal with. And we all know a bunged up nose makes you more susceptible to colds and flus too. If you're experiencing the same thing, then just Wellness's olive leaf extract and pelagonium blend for ear, nose, throat and upper respiratory tract infections should definitely be on your shopping list. Pelagonium is highly valued as a remedy for several respiratory tract ailments, including acute bronchitis and the effects of allergies and hay fever. With antiviral, antimicrobial and antibacterial properties, just Wellness's Pelagonian and Olive Leaf Extract Blend is just what we need to get us through the last dregs of winter and spring. You can purchase the product through Just Wellness's website or Discam is currently running a 3 for 2 promotion on Just Wellness products, which sounds like a bargain to me. A huge thank you to Just Wellness for supporting True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Misha Marie, Sandra, Brenda Hopal, Samantha Kesting, Bronwyn Blomdahl, Stain Fun Sale, Johan Horn, Emmy Keys, and Riley James for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. If you don't follow the show on social media, you might not know that my first true crime book is being released on the 10th of October. Samurai Sword Murder, the Mornay Haramsa story, is being published by Melinda Ferguson Books, an imprint of NB Publishers. It will be available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook formats. There are three launches planned so far. The first is on the 12th of October at Exclusive Books Rosebank. The second on the 13th of October at Exclusive Books Clearwater Mall. 
and the third is on the 18th of October at Exclusive Books in Cavendish Square. I'd love to see you at one of those launches and sign your copy of the book. The book is pretty much a dream come true for me and something I've wanted since I was six years old. And this podcast and your support of it has played a huge role in that. So thank you, and I can't wait to share this with you. Now, on with today's episode. I first came across today's case when I was helping a television production company to gather interviewees for a series they're filming. I remembered the case vaguely from seeing headlines about it, but hadn't really delved into it until I needed to try and find people related to the case. The case has significant echoes of a hugely infamous case that's actually still ongoing with new charges, that of Rosemary and Lovu. And if the first thing that popped into your head when you heard that name was life insurance, then you're definitely on the right track. There is no acceptable motive for murder. But sometimes it's easier to accept the existence of a motive when it's, for instance, a crime of passion or a mental health defence. But when the motive is purely greed, a desire for money, which is so absolutely temporary when compared to the value of a human life, it somehow seems even more heinous. My sources for today's case include a series of articles written by George Herald journalist Christy Kohlberg, who did amazing work covering this case the media release of the indictment from the NPA, and audio sources from Times Live. So let's get into episode 93, The Murder of Klompo Mohapi Koloe. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Klompo Mohapi Kaloe was born in 1993 to her mother Patricia. Her family included a sister and her brother William. The Kaloe family lived in Tembaletu in George for most of Klompo's life, and she would become a well-known and much-loved resident. After leaving school, Klompo would become involved in a relationship and give birth to two daughters. That relationship did not last, but the beautiful young woman found love again in her mid-twenties and was in a secure and loving relationship at age 25. The Kaloi family had been through a few very difficult years by that time. In 2011, when Klompo was 18, her sister passed away after a short illness. Her mother, Patricia, was understandably devastated, and this loss only made Klompo feel more pressed to work hard and help her mother financially. Finding a permanent job was difficult, though, and try as she might, Klompo really struggled to secure permanent employment. The Kaloi family was deeply religious, and Patricia and Klompo enjoyed attending the services of a relatively new church to the area. God's Work Ministries was a church founded and run by self-ordained minister Melesizwe Monho. 
The 30-year-old man was charismatic and a seemingly devout Christian who appeared to be completely committed to his church members. Mongo's base for his church and his home was actually in King Williamstown, which was a six-hour drive from George, but he didn't want to isolate his message just to his hometown, so he became a travelling minister of sorts and would deliver sermons all over the garden route. Mongo had developed quite a following in Tembeletu, due in no small part to the fact that his wife, 23-year-old Siposietle, was born in the area, and she knew many of the residents. People were drawn to Monmo's vibrant sermons, and if him being a pastor wasn't already enough reason to trust him, his association with a well-known resident of the area definitely helped the trust relationship along. Patricia Kaloy and her children often attended Monmo's sermons. The man's wife was a friend of her family, and she and Klompo knew each other well. Patricia had become involved in the church and almost an unofficial head of the Tembeletu chapter of God's Work Ministries. Mongo was so deeply invested in his congregation that he wanted to see all of them being really successful, and as a result, he tasked his wife with collecting personal information on many of the church members, so that if he came across employment opportunities for them, he could connect them with prospective employers. Or at least, that's what he was telling people. And that's what he told Klompo Koloi on the 2nd of July. He called her to tell her he'd heard about a job opportunity at George Airport. He asked Klompo if she would be interested in going for the interview. And, of course, Klompo immediately agreed. Opportunities were hard to come by, and she was absolutely grateful that her pastor was looking out for her in this way. He told her that he would even arrange transport for her, and he'd be in touch soon with further arrangements. Extremely excited, Tlompo immediately told her mother, brother, and boyfriend about the interview. Patricia was happy for her daughter, and certainly felt that an additional income would be welcome, but she was also a little distracted. A family member living in Lesotho had passed away, and she was preparing to travel to the neighbouring country for the funeral. She would be away when Klompo went for her interview, so she made her daughter promise to keep her updated. Pastor Monmo soon let Klompo know that the interview was scheduled for the 5th of July. She needn't worry about transportation, as he would arrange that. She just needed to be waiting at a designated spot on a turn-off on the N2 highway, and he would have her collected. There was one thing that George Airport required of Klompo before the interview, though, Monmo said. She would need to take an HIV test. Now, if all your labour law sirens are going off, yes, you are 100% correct. It is, in fact, completely illegal for any employer or prospective employer in South Africa to demand this of their employees or applicants. You cannot be discriminated against for employment opportunities based on your HIV status. But Lompo either did not know that or wasn't concerned. She was confident of her HIV-negative status 
and happy to take the test if it got her one step closer to being employed. So, on the 4th of July, Thlompo and her boyfriend arrived at Tembeletu Square, a local shopping centre, where they saw Monlo's car parked, and when they approached, they saw that a nurse was already waiting inside the car. Thlompo's boyfriend watched as the nurse drew a vial of blood, and then they went on their way. The next day, at the arranged time, Thlompo dressed in her best outfits, neatly styled her hair, and applied her makeup. Her brother and boyfriend walked with her to the meeting spot, and within minutes of their arrival, a silver Suzuki with no number plates pulled up. There were two men in the car, one sitting in front driving the vehicle, and the other sitting in the back. Thlompo said goodbye to her brother, planted a kiss on her boyfriend's cheek, and with their good luck wishes ringing in her ears, she got into the front seat of the car, and both men watched as the silver car disappeared into the distance. At fifteen minutes past two that afternoon, a friend of Flompos received a strange message from her. In it, Flompos said that her interview went well, but then she made a terrifying revelation. She said in the message that she'd accepted a lift from two men she'd met at the airport. One of the men had said they were going her way because his girlfriend lived in Herald's Bay, and now they'd pulled over on the side of the road and were threatening to kill her if she didn't have sex with them. In the message, Thlompo begged her friend to call police immediately, even providing the woman with a description of the vehicle she was in, a white polo, and the registration number. The woman did exactly this. The officer that answered took down the details, but just as he put down the phone and looked to see which patrol car he could dispatch, the phone rang again. This time it was Lompo Koloi's boyfriend. At 25 minutes past two that afternoon, he'd received the identical message from his girlfriend. He tried calling her, and her phone went straight to voicemail. He phoned police right away. The policeman assured him that he'd have a car en route to the location soon and put down the phone. When the officer started to ascertain the location of his patrol vehicles, though, he realized there actually was already a van in the location described. At 2 p.m. that afternoon, two fishermen had flagged down a passing police car and reported that they'd found the body of a young woman on the gravel road leading up to Fulclip in Herald's Bay. If the name Fulclip sounds familiar to you, that's because the scenic spot, which is intended as a lookout and angling area and popular with tourists as its cliffs tower above the sea below, has been in the news quite a lot in the last few years, for all the wrong reasons. In 2019, Heidi Skierpers and her two children died when the car they were in went over the edge and down into the sea below. The three deaths remain mired in mystery, with many claiming foul play, while others believe that Skierpers may have accidentally driven too close to the edge, or that she may have purposefully 
ended her and her children's lives. Since then, sadly, the beautiful spot has become the site of many more deaths, some accidental, but many more confirmed suicides by eyewitness testimony. It has sadly become all too common to see headlines lamenting, Full clip claims another life. But on this day in 2018, none of that had happened yet. There had been the occasional accidental death, but the beautiful spot had not yet become as associated with tragedy. So when police followed the two fishermen down the gravel road and discovered the horrific scene, it was pretty unprecedented for the area. The young female was clearly deceased, having suffered several stab wounds, and her throat had been partially slit. Detective Constable Tembekile Matwa was assigned to the case, and although the body had no identification with it, within hours and after finding out about the two phone calls that had come in after the body had been found, Matwa asked Klompo's boyfriend to send a photograph of her, without saying why he needed it. He then went into the mortuary and compared the picture to the young woman who'd just been brought in. Very quickly, he knew that he would have to call Klompo's boyfriend and friend back, with the worst news they might ever receive. Patricia Colloy was in Lesotho, attending her family member's funeral when she got the call, that she'd lost yet another child. Although there was little information available in those early hours, Patricia recalls simply being told that her daughter had been stabbed and robbed and left on the side of the road in Herald's Bay. The devastated mother returned to South Africa immediately. Her two granddaughters were now her sole responsibility. Detective Matwa quickly traced Klompo's last known movements, her boyfriend and brother were called in for questioning, and they relayed the story about her having gone for an interview that day. Just from this conversation, there were many lines of inquiry to be investigated. George Airport was contacted to determine whether Klompo had indeed been interviewed by them that day. The description of the vehicle provided in the message to Klompo's friend and boyfriend was put out to all surrounding jurisdictions but when the license plate number was run, it didn't come back to a white VW polo. Of course, there was one big red flag in the message allegedly sent by Klompo. By the time both recipients received it, the young woman was already dead. Of course, police could not discount the possibility that the message had been typed and sent by Klompo while she was still alive, and perhaps she hadn't had data or a strong enough signal on her phone for it to send, and then maybe she'd been killed, the killer had stolen her phone, and moved into an area with signal, or connected to Wi-Fi somewhere, and it had sent the message. That possibility could be discounted if forensics officers could analyse the cell phone itself, as they'd then be able to see what time the message was actually created but to do that, they needed her phone. Realising that finding the missing cell phone would be a huge step toward finding the young woman's killer, 
Matwa immediately started a trace on Klompo's cell phone. On the 7th of July, Matwa discovered that a new SIM card had been inserted into the victim's phone just hours after her death. Phone records provided the number that was now attached to the phone. Tracking the handset in real time, he saw that it had pinged just minutes before at a petrol station on the N2, just outside of Neisner. The detective made his way there. He was kept updated on the location of the handset by cell phone analysts as he drove. On arrival at the petrol station, he noticed a quantum taxi pulling out of the pump area and heading toward the highway. On instinct, he followed it. Analysts soon confirmed that Matwa's own cell phone and the stolen cell phone were travelling together in the same direction down the N2. The policeman's instinct had been right. One of the passengers in the taxi in front of him was at the very least guilty of receiving stolen goods. At worst, they may be guilty of murder. As he drove, Matwa continuously phoned the number that was now in Klompo's handset. Then, he flagged down the taxi driver and indicated that he should pull over. He instructed the passengers to exit the vehicle one by one with their cell phones in their hands. They did as they were told, and Matwa lined them up on the side of the road and started dialing the number. He walked down the line, waiting to see one of the phones held out, light up, but none did. Then, as he passed one man, he heard something. He looked down and saw the man's pants pocket moving. It was a second phone, vibrating in the man's pocket. Matwa told the man to keep his hands where he could see them, and reached into his pocket, pulling out the phone, which was lit up with Matwa's own number calling. He had his man. The man in possession of Klompo Koloe's cell phone identified himself as Pumulani Kesheka. He told the detective that he was on his way to the Eastern Cape to visit family, but he lived in King Williamstown with his cousin. At the police station, Kesheka asked if he could call his cousin to the station, and when Detective Matwa heard the name of the man's cousin, he immediately agreed. The name was one already on his list of persons of interest. When he'd spoken with Lompo's boyfriend and brother, they said that the job interview had been arranged by one pastor Monho, and they were certain that he had been driving the silver car in which Klompo had been collected that fateful day. Now, here was a man with the victim's cell phone in his possession who could be linked to Monho by his own admission. It seemed that it seemed the pieces of some sort of puzzle were starting to come together. When police searched the bag that Kesheka had with him in the taxi, they found even more damning evidence. A blood-stained T-shirt. The shirt was bagged and sent for testing. Kesheka was advised that he would not be leaving the police station that day. He was under arrest. When Monlo arrived at the police station, he introduced himself by a different name, 
clearly not realising that his cousin had already revealed his identity to the police. When told that they already knew what his name was, Montlos smiled and made light of it, claiming that this was an alter ego of sorts he often used when he gave sermons. It was for effect. Although there was significant evidence against Kesheka, even after questioning Monro and then his wife Siposikle, the detective had nothing to hold them on at that point. The pair initially claimed they had no idea what happened to Klompo, and Monro said that he definitely had not collected the woman that day. Detective Matwa asked the couple to remain in contact as he would have further questions. He didn't have enough to take anything further with them, at least not yet. On the 11th of July, an insurance assessor working for Outsurance received a call confirming a claim on a life insurance policy. The policy was valued at 3 million rand and was comprehensive cover on the life of one Klompo Koloi. The assessor, Eric Buckle, said that he'd been telephoned by a man who identified himself as the life partner of Koloi. The man explained that his partner had been murdered six days before and he wanted to start the process of claiming on the policy she'd put in place. Buckle took down the details and promised the man that he would process the claim as quickly as possible. As part of the processing of the claim, Buckle discovered that for a 25-year-old woman, Kaloy had been significantly insured. There were two other policies in place for her life. Both were accidental death policies, as opposed to the comprehensive cover outsurance had for her, so they were lower in value, but he certainly found this suspicious. After confirming that all three policies had been taken out on the same day, the 3rd of July, Two days before Kaloi's murder, Buckle's next call was to police. I can almost picture Detective Matwa receiving the call from Buckle that day, leaning back in his chair and letting out a long breath. Here was a motive, more than three million rands worth of motives. Now they had to figure out who was actually behind the policies. Although the person making the call had claimed to be Kaloi's life partner, her actual boyfriend denied making the call. He also had no idea that Kaloi had any life insurance. She hadn't even been employed, he said, so how would she even pay the premiums? It was a good question, and one Matwa was determined to answer. Thankfully, the information received from the insurance companies would be a gold mine. You know that message you hear when you call into some customer service lines? This call is being recorded for insert purpose here. Most of us don't even consciously hear that message anymore. Maybe because we don't mind, or even because we're quite pleased the call's being recorded, because then we'll have proof of the conversation that took place. Well, Detective Matwa was very pleased when those recordings were handed over to him, because not only was he able to listen to the man who'd called in to make the claim on Klompo's life and ascertain 
that the voice was not that of her boyfriend, but he was also able to listen to all of the recordings of a woman who'd called in to actually take the policies out. And he was also able to determine that it was not Klompo Koloi. Some more useful information came from the insurance companies in the form of the beneficiary on the three policies, which was all the same, one Mr. Zonke. And although the email addresses were all created to include Klompo's name, they were all Yahoo addresses, and the IP address under which they were created did not lead back to any device owned by Klompo. The telephone numbers provided as contacts were also not Klompo's. And lastly, and perhaps most damning of all, the bank accounts from which the premiums had been deducted did not belong to Klompo. All of this evidence led back to two people, Pastor Melisizwe Monro and his wife Siposikle Pamba. On the 16th of July 2018, Monro and Pamba were arrested by Detective Matwa. The home of Pamba's mother in Tembaletu was searched, and four additional phones were found along with three different SIM cards. This was in addition to a phone each found in the couple's possession at the time of their arrest. Also found on the property was a Suzuki vehicle, which had the number plates removed. The number plates to the vehicle would be found in the couple's King Williamstown home, and it was ascertained that the vehicle was a rental car, which had been booked out of the rental agency in early July. The most damning evidence found inside the vehicle was a large blood stain on the passenger seat. Klompo's brother and boyfriend confirmed that this was the car that had collected Klompo on the day of her death. Her boyfriend also said it was the same car that he'd seen the day before her death when they'd attended Tembaletu Square for the blood test. In addition, both men confirmed that the driver of the vehicle on the day of Klompo's death had been Monho, and although her boyfriend could not identify the man in the back seat, her brother knew the man from God's Work Ministry, and he said it was most certainly Monho's cousin, Kesheka. A very clear picture was starting to emerge. With the license plates of the vehicle having been removed, it would not be possible to use license plate recognition technology to identify the movements of the vehicle. I did wonder whether this vehicle had a tracker in it, as tracking technology was used extensively in the murder of Jade Ings when her killers used a rental car. But I couldn't find any information about this having been the case here, and I guess it's possible that the rental agency they used didn't fit its vehicles with trackers if it was more on the lower budget end of the scale. Police were able to conclusively link the rental of the vehicle to Monho, though, through his bank statement, where he'd paid rental installments. This also makes me think that the rental agency was perhaps not as sophisticated as some of the bigger agencies, as for the most part, you don't make EFT payments for car rentals, 
They use your credit card to deduct what you owe. By this time, the blood on the shirt found in Kasheka's possession had been identified as belonging to Klompo Koloe, and he was officially charged with her murder. Now Detective Matwa just had to fit the final pieces of the puzzle in place to determine exactly what roles Monro and Pampa had played. Of course, by now it was also very clear that the job interview at George Airport had never been real. The airport's company said it only worked through personnel agents and it would never have dreamed of asking for an HIV test from an applicant. Kasheka, for his part, denied having murdered Klompo. He said that on the morning of the 4th of July, he, his cousin and his cousin's wife, had left King Williamstown in the Silver Suzuki. He claimed that Monro had told him he had work for him in Tembeletu, at the home of Pamba's mother. They'd driven straight through the nights, and on arrival in Tembeletu on the morning of the 5th of July, Monro had dropped him off at Pamba's mother's house and shown him an area of gravel that needed to be flattened. It was there, Kasheka claimed, that he'd remained for the rest of the day until Monro and Pamba had returned in the afternoon with the car, which he noticed had something red smeared on the seat. He said he didn't ask questions, and Pamba handed him a cell phone, which she said he could use. This, he alleged, was how he came to be in possession of Tlompo Koloi's cell phone. Cell phone activity from Kisheka's phone seemed to support this version. While Monho and Pamba's phones could be placed in George and near Herald's Bay during the day on the 5th, Kasheka's had remained inactive. This, though Detective Matwa knew, simply could mean that the man had been smart enough not to take his cell phone along for the ride, and Lompo's brother and boyfriend were both adamant that the silver car that had driven their loved one to her death that day had been occupied by two men, Monho and Kasheka and not Pamba. All three were now in the awaiting trial section of the local prison, and the community were well aware of this. So when in late July, Monho suddenly started posting on his social media accounts, eyebrows were understandably raised. When DCS officials got wind of this, Monho's cell was searched, and a cell phone and charger were found in his possession. He was charged with illegally being in possession of a device while incarcerated, and the cell phone was confiscated for analysis. The close-knit community of Tembeletu was in crisis. Patricia Kaloy did not want to believe that her pastor, a man she'd respected and trusted, could possibly be behind the murder of her daughter. Congregation members of God's Work Ministries across the garden route, were in an uproar, and soon rumours leaked back to police, which would turn what was already a strange and complicated tale into something Detective Matwa could never have imagined in his wildest dreams. To tell this part of the story, I need to take you back to 2017 and introduce you to a woman named Nomfondiso 
boy, Naza. Nom Fundiso met Pastor Monro when she became a congregant in his church in King Williamstown. The man was already married to Pamba at this point, but the pair became engaged in an extramarital affair. At some point, it's claimed that Nom Fundiso had wanted Monro to either leave his wife or end the relationship with her. She would later explain that this had spiralled out of control when Pamba discovered the affair and began to harass her. The young woman simply wanted out of the relationship, and in June she took out a protection order against both Monro and Pamba to stop them contacting her. But the couple, she said, were not finished with her. On the 22nd of June 2017, Nomfundiso was attacked at knife point by a man wearing a balaclava. She would later say that although the man was masked, she knew Monho well enough to know that it was him. Nomfundiso suffered severe injuries from this attack, but survived. Now sadly, it was never explained whether Nomfundiso had opened a case against Monho for this attack, or if she'd simply been too afraid to, but with her having survived, Monho seemingly was not prepared to stop there. When these rumours reached Detective Matwa's ears, and he started to poke around King Williamstown, a man came forward who confirmed that he had been hired to make a second attempt on Nomfundiso's life. The man, who was not identified as he turned state witness, admitted that in late 2017 he'd been approached by Pastor Monro to carry out a hit on Nomfundiso Boy. He'd been promised 10,000 rand for the job, but he told police he hadn't gone through with it. Although he didn't, someone did, because on the 6th of May 2018, Nomfundiso's mother's house was broken into by two males wearing balaclavas. The men shot and injured Nomfundiso and shot at her little brother and mother. Thankfully, they were not injured and Nomfundiso miraculously survived the second attempt on her life. Detective Matwa was stunned, and acting on instinct, he turned to the insurance companies and asked them to run Nomfundiso's name for inactive life insurance policies. Sure enough, several policies had been taken out in the run-up to the first attack on Nomfundiso Boy. The woman confirmed that she had not taken out these policies on her life and was unaware of their existence. It seemed that after the second attempt failed, her pursuers had figured she was too much of a liability and the policies on her had lapsed. Again, I have not been able to determine why none of this was investigated at the time and how two violent attempts on a woman's life seemingly slipped straight through the fingers of the police. But perhaps King Williamstown just didn't have a detective like Matwa. Or perhaps Nomfundiso Boy was just so absolutely terrified that she couldn't bring herself to take action. Either way, it became blatantly evident that Monro, Pampa, and Kesheka 
had a significant history of the type of crimes they were being charged with in Klompo's murder. And the deeper the detective dug into insurance records, the wider the web appeared to stretch. Montmo and Pamba had not just taken out insurance policies on the two women already mentioned, but also several of their congregants had life insurance policies. They just didn't know about them. One by one, Montmo seemed to have been working his way through his congregants, taking out life insurances without their knowledge, and then waiting for just the right moment to strike. There didn't seem to have been any other attempted murders, at least not any that correlated with the policies that were now emerging. But there were tens of thousands of rands in life insurance policy premiums coming off several different bank accounts in the names of Monho and Pamba. The vast majority of these policies were either accidental death cover or funeral policies. The same two beneficiaries were always nominated, either Mr. Zonke, who was eventually determined to be a family member of Monho, or Pamba's mother. Neither person knew that their names had been attached to these policies as beneficiaries. By means of voice analysis, it was determined that the female person who'd called in to take the policies out, who was impersonating Klompo, Nomfundiso and the other targets, was none other than Montmo's wife, Sipesihle Pamba. The male who had called in impersonating Klompo's boyfriend was identified as Montmo. Pamba denied any involvement in Klompo's murder. She claimed that her phone had been left in the Suzuki that day, and that's why it had pinged on towers in the area. She said that she'd not left her mother's house in Tembaletu, as she'd been caring for her sick child. She did, however, make one pretty huge admission. She had been the one that, that had taken out the life insurance policies. It was her voice on those recordings. But she said she'd done so under duress. Pamba claimed that she'd been the victim of domestic abuse for the entirety of her relationship with Montlo. She said the man controlled her every move and had threatened the lives of her, her child and her mother if she didn't do what he told her to do. She said that she knew taking out the policies was wrong She'd never thought that it would end in murder, and when she heard that Klompoid had been killed, she was horrified to think that she'd played a part in that. She did not come forward, though, and continued to lie to police, because she was afraid of Monho. She'd hoped that he would be arrested, and then she would be free to speak openly. With regard to the attempts on Nomfondiso Boy's life, Pastor Monho had a, a pretty wild tale to tell there too. He claimed that Boy had orchestrated the attempts herself. Yes, you heard that correctly. Monho claimed that Nomfondiso had arranged two attempted hits on herself and that her plan had actually been to fake her own murder and frame Monho's wife so that she and Monho could be together. Montmore had known about Boy's plan, he claimed, 
and he was afraid of the woman, so he had no choice but to go along with it. He even implicated his cousin as being the second man who'd entered the home of Boy and shot her and shot at her younger brother and mother. Detective Matwa asked Montlaw why, if Boy had orchestrated the whole thing, had she not gone through with the plan? Why had she taken out a protection order against him and his wife? And how was it possible that the exact same plan had been duplicated in Plompo's case? Montlaw could not explain it, and Detective Matwa knew that this was because it was all an elaborate lie. Every person in Nomfundiso Boy's life confirmed that when she realized what type of man Montlaw really was, she'd wanted nothing to do with him, and she did her best to get away from him. There was absolutely no way she would risk the lives of her young brother and mother to carry out some plot to fake her own death. The very existence of life policies against other members of Monroe's congregation proved that the scheme was linked to him and his wife and not to Boy in any way, except her having been a victim. Sadly, it now becomes apparent that if Boy's case had been investigated, Tlompo Koloi may still have been alive. As Monro's congregants started to realize that so many of them had been intended victims, they became enraged. When he and his two co-accused applied for bail, the community gathered outside the courthouse, demanding that the three be kept in custody, or else. Their bail applications were eventually denied. During the bail application, certain evidence was presented, including the revelation that the blood in the rental vehicle had been identified as belonging to Klompo Koloi. It also became clear that police and prosecutors were quickly realizing that the growing magnitude of evidence of other crimes committed by all three defendants meant that they would not be able to try the case in the local court. The complexity of the case called for a high court sitting, and all charges needed to be centralized into one trial to avoid wasting resources. It was also during the bail application when Detective Matwa testified that one lingering question was answered. What was the story behind the blood test? Matwa told the court that in order for the more valuable comprehensive life cover policy to be put in place, the insurance company had required an HIV test to be taken. The nurse that Lompo and her boyfriend met with in Tembeletu Square that day was actually a real nurse from the insurance company, but at that moment there existed a divergent understanding between the parties present. The nurse had told Matwa that she was there as part of her work for the insurance company to draw blood. Lompo and her boyfriend, on the other hand, believed that the blood test was for the job opportunity at George Airport. Somehow, Montlaw had managed to wrangle it so that neither one mentioned their own perspective to the other in their brief interaction, and all parties had left the square still believing their own narrative around the blood test. 
The complexity of the case and the necessity to further investigate the 2018 attempted murder charges, as well as, as the new fraud charges, resulted in many delays, and by June 2019, the trial had still not started. It was in this month, though, that one of the defendants was caught with a deadly weapon in his possession. During an appearance in June 2019, Kasheka was brought to court from prison and walked through the metal detectors, which immediately went off. The man was patted down and nothing was found, but the metal detectors kept going off. Eventually it was determined that Kasheka had a 17-centimeter-long folding knife hidden in his anus. And I'm glad they mentioned it was a folding knife, because that is very important to the painful mental image conjured. Kasheka was taken to the hospital, where the knife was extracted, and he was charged with its possession. The man would not say where the knife had come from, or what he intended to do with it, but an escape plan certainly springs to mind. Finally, in October 2020, after new delays due to the pandemic, the trial of the three defendants started in the George Circuit High Court. Advocate Ivadni Korkia would be appearing for the state, and the judge allocated to the case was Taswell Papier. Each of the three defendants had their own lawyer. Johan Fisser SC represented Montlo, Davi Skoltz represented Pamba, and Louise Luterek would represent Kesheka. The indictments against the three included a total of 29 charges relating to the double attempted murder of Nomfondiso Boy, the attempted murder of her brother and mother, the kidnapping and murder of Klompo Koloi, and multiple fraud charges related to the insurance policies. Pamba pleaded not guilty to all charges against her, which included fraud, conspiracy to commit murder, housebreaking with intent to murder, three counts of attempted murder, and the illegal possession of a firearm and ammunition. She maintained that she was coerced by fear into taking out the insurance policies, which was to be her defense, and further claimed that she had not been present for any of the violent attacks on Boy or Klompo. Monko initially pleaded guilty to two counts of insurance fraud and one of the contravention of an interim protection order which related to Boy's case. He pleaded not guilty to all the other charges against him, though, which included conspiracy to commit murder, robbery with aggravating circumstances, four other counts of fraud, attempted murder, and housebreaking with the intent to murder. Two days later, though, on his next court appearance, he requested leave to change his plea to guilty on all the remaining charges as well, essentially admitting that he had been involved in the murder of Klompo Koloi. This change in plea was accepted by the state and the judge, and it was now up to the state to prove the charges against Pamba and Kasheka. More than 30 witnesses would be called to testify to evidence in the complex set of crimes, and when Klompo's friend and boyfriend 
testified about the message they had each received from her phone that day, it became clear that the message had been a pretty cleverly constructed ruse. Either Kesheka or Monho had to have sent the message, as it was proven by cell phone analysis, to have been created after Klompo was already dead. The message served multiple purposes, though. Rather than the usual M.O. of a murderer not wanting their victim to be found quickly, these perpetrators actually did want that. The sooner Klompo's body was found, the sooner they'd be able to claim on the life insurance. The other purpose the message served was to send police on a wild goose chase by providing the description of a fictitious vehicle with a thumb-sucked license plate number. And thirdly, it sought to give Monho and Kesheka an out. Perhaps they'd not expected Klompo to be accompanied by her brother and boyfriend when they picked her up that day. Perhaps they were concerned that they'd been identified and needed to come up with some reason that Klompo would be with someone else when she was killed. So the message was drafted to give the impression that she had gone for the interview and then gotten a lift with an entirely different set of men. This message was actually quite cleverly crafted. Remember the message saying that the men were demanding sex from Klompo? Well, there was no evidence of sexual assault on the young woman, but seemingly, inexplicably, the pathologist would testify that her skirt had been torn open. It's entirely possible that this was done by Monho and Kesheka in order to line up with the rape claims in the message they would send, or even included in the message after the fact to further draw attention away from the real motive, and perhaps explain her skirt being torn, which may have happened when she was pulled from the car. The pathologist would also testify that Lompo had injuries to her hands, which indicated that she'd been trying to defend herself while she was being savagely attacked. Klompo had been stabbed seven times. She sustained injuries to her heart, lung, and liver. But the fatal wound had been the partial slitting of her throat, which had led to extensive bleeding, from which she would have died within minutes of sustaining the injury. The many witnesses who testified included Eric Buckle, who'd uncovered the various life insurance policies taken out by Monho and Pamba. Monho continued to claim he'd been forced to commit the crimes under duress from Nomfondiso Boe. Pamba continued to claim, and in her attorney's closing argument, again expressed that she'd been a battered woman who had been so emotionally broken that she'd behaved in an automatic manner to ensure her safety and that of her family. Her credibility, though, had been severely damaged during the trial when she'd initially claimed that she'd never visited George with her husband, and the prosecutor went on to present bank statements that proved that she had, and she had to admit that she was lying. If that point had been a fabrication, 
one had to wonder what else Pampa was lying about. Kasheka claimed throughout the trial that he had not been physically involved in any of the violent incidents, and that any connections back to him were entirely the fault of his cousin. He could not explain how a bloodied shirt matched to Klompo would be in his possession. In a scathing judgment, which outlined the heinous nature of the various crimes committed by the three accused, Judge Papier found all three guilty of the charges against them. The cumulative value of the life insurances taken out on the victims and the planned victims had amounted to close to 27 million rand. In November 2021, Judge Papier handed down sentence to the three. Both Mongo and Kasheka were given life sentences, while Pamba was handed down an effective sentence of 20 years for her roles in the crimes. The judge was unsure that the estate had proven the woman was present for Klompo's murder. With the judicial process having come to an end, the Kaloe family could now move on with grieving for Klompo. I've had the pleasure of having some conversations with Patricia Kaloe, and four years after the murder of her daughter, her deep sadness is still palpable. At the same time, the reality of life continues on unabated, not caring that life should have stopped the moment that this mother lost her child. Despite her daughter having been killed over huge sums of money and deep greed, the woman is left with two granddaughters to raise, clothe, feed and educate. And as much as this mother would like to just sit down and wallow in her unimaginable grief, she cannot do that. In the midst of a pretty heavy conversation about her loss, she sighs and says, You know, Nicole, I just need to figure out how to stop the rain coming in the roof. And that stops me in my tracks. Because of all the things that this woman has to worry about, a leaking roof should not have to be one of them. But it is. It's become a priority because thanks to three selfish people, right now, Patricia is all that Klompo's daughters have left. She's the one that has to figure out the roof problem. And then maybe she can mourn her daughter. I discovered quite a lovely side story to this case that I wanted to share with you too. I've always said that I don't think local newspaper reporters get enough credit for the work they do, and I was once again reminded of just how important their voices are when I got to engage with Christy Kohlberg, the journalist from the George Herald who covered this case. Christy sat in court for every single day of this trial, and she became very friendly with Klompo's mother, Patricia. Christy described to me how she and the woman forged a pretty special friendship. And when Patricia expressed that she was struggling financially and really needed to find work to help support her granddaughters, Christy offered what she could, 
and Patricia now works for her a few days a week. It really is thanks to Christy that so much of this case was documented in the detail that it was, and that we're now able to make some sense of what really is a senseless crime. What Melissa's where Monho did was truly a betrayal of one of the worst kinds. When people give themselves over to a faith, no matter what religion they might follow, they go into that with the belief that those who lead their churches are righteous and trustworthy men and women. Never in a million years would Monho's congregants have believed if proof hadn't been given to them in the most savage of ways, that their religious leader was actually a calculating predator. The absolute cold-heartedness of the crimes this man committed truly are beyond belief. He was actually already living a pretty good life. He had multiple homes, a pretty young wife. He had the respect and loyalty of many different congregations across the garden route. But that was just not enough for him. In fact, I don't think it ever would have been enough. Whether or not Pamba truly was the victim of coercive control within her marriage is at least, in my mind, an unanswered question. I'm not qualified to say whether she was or was not a victim of domestic violence. But the fact remains that what she did contributed to the murder of a young woman, her friend, and a childhood acquaintance, and the attempted murders of several other people, including a child. So while I understand why she didn't receive the same sentence as her husband and his cousin, I do think... She deserves to serve time for her role. Throughout my reviewing of the evidence, I went back and forth between whether I thought Pumalani Kasheka was a participant or unwittingly drawn into the web cast by his charismatic and cunning cousin, but there are a few small things that convinced me he's as guilty as Monho. He claims that he was given Klompo's phone as a gift by Pamba, but when he was stopped by Detective Matwa, he purposefully hid the phone. Why would you hide a phone if you thought it was a gift? The blood on the shirt in his backpack is, of course, huge evidence of his involvement. Evidence given by Nomfundiso Boy that even in 2017, Kasheka was already acting as a henchman of sorts for his cousin, is also compelling. And then there is the presence of the man in the back seat when Klompo was picked up. Her boyfriend said that Klompo had actually initially gone to the back of the vehicle, but she'd been instructed by the men to sit in the front, next to Monko. Throughout his investigations, Detective Matwa could not identify anyone else that Monho had worked with in this murder besides the man who became state witness, other than his cousin. He was smart enough to keep his circle small, to family, to a man he could trust. 
From the blood staining in the car, it seems likely that Klompo was killed in the passenger seat that she'd gotten into, and I can almost picture it going down, unfortunately. Monko drives to a designated spot and gives a word to his cousin, who, seated right behind the unsuspecting woman, is in a perfect position to hold her back while Monko stabs her. At some point, perhaps, in the slippery blood, Kasheka loses his grip on Klompo's arms, and she instinctively brings her hand up to shield herself from the knife that's assailing her body. Then he regains control, and the final wound is inflicted, very likely by Kasheka, from behind. And then the men roll up to the gravel road leading to Fulklip, open the car door, and toss Klompo out, like to them she was nothing more than a piece of rubbish. Of her daughter, Patricia says the following, quote, I will never get over losing my baby. She had her entire life ahead of her, and I know she would have made me proud one day. I can't put my grief into words. Every day is torture for me, and there's nothing I can do to bring her back. All I have left are pictures and dreams. End quote. Klompo Mohapi Kaloi was just 25 years old. All she wanted to do was secure employment to be able to provide for her two daughters. On the day she died, she thought she was one step closer to making that dream come true. But really, she was just being led astray all along by someone who only had their own enrichments in mind. Throughout this journey, I've had to stop believing in coincidences. There have been too many that have led me to just the right person at just the right time for me to think that it was all just the luck of the draw. I'd been looking for Patricia Colloy for some time when I eventually connected with her, and that was through Christy Kohlberg, who was much easier to find. Then Christy mentioned offhandedly, Oh, I guess you've spoken with Lompo's mom already. And I had to say, well, no, I haven't, because I can't find her. So Christy put me in touch with her. And it was a couple of days before I actually got around to messaging Patricia. I knew the general gist of the case by then, but didn't have the specific dates. And I'd only realized later that the day I chose to finally contact Patricia was the 5th of July, 2022, the anniversary of Klompo's murder. Four years to the day. And if that wasn't odd enough, my first message to Patricia introducing myself was sent at 13.58, two minutes away from the moments that two passing fishermen had walked down Fulclip Road and discovered Klompo's body four years before. 
I'm totally fine with this just being a really weird coincidence. But I'd like to think that maybe it was an acknowledgement from something out there that the story needed to be told. Klompo's story represents the betrayal of the power we give to people based on who we think they are and sometimes who they tell us they are. It's a cold reminder that we cannot let our guard down because even when we think we're dealing with the most pure, really, we may just be looking at a mask that covers up pure evil. Klompo Mohapi Kaloe, rest gently. Thank you for listening to episode 93, The Murder of Klompo Mohapi Kaloe. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.